Hi everyone, I'm your host Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 18 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today we are pleased to present Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov in conversation with Ron Meyer, Vice Chairman of NBC Universal. From 1995 to 2013, Ron served as president and COO of Universal Studios, the longest-running studio chief in the modern era. A former Marine, he received the Producers Guild prestigious Milestone Award in 2007. We're excited to present this career-spanning conversation with Ron and learn what's driven him to such success and longevity in Hollywood. The child of immigrant parents who escaped Nazi Germany, Ron Meyer has had a long and groundbreaking career in Hollywood. We'll hear about his determination that led to his first job as an agent as a teenager, his return-every-call philosophy, and the movies he's most proud to be associated with. We're here again, taking KindraCast on the road to Los Angeles, this time at Universal Studios, to re-engage with the entertainment industry at its source, at a particularly interesting and critical moment for Hollywood, for content creation, for entertainment overall. And I can't think of a better person to be sitting with than Ron Meyer, who is Hollywood's ultimate insider. As a co-founder of CAA in 1975, he has guided the careers of stars like Sylvester Stallone, Michael Douglas, Barbara Streisand, Meryl Streep, Whoopi Goldberg, Tom Cruise, and many more. In 1995, he joined Universal Studios as president and chief operating officer. He ran the studio for 18 years and has racked up hits that include movies like Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, Meet the Parents, The Fast and the Furious, and Despicable Me. Ron was promoted to vice chairman of NBC Universal in 2013. He provides strategic guidance and counsel on all aspects of the company, including its valuable portfolio of film and television assets, as well as the global theme park business. A high school dropout and ex-Marine, Ron is tough-minded, incredibly gracious, a fighter, and a survivor, but also a mentor to so many in the industry. I thought I would give a bit of a background of Ron because it's a very interesting story that has a long arc of not just media and entertainment, but also life. Ron Meyer was born on September 24th, 1944, to Jewish immigrant parents who escaped Nazi Germany. He dropped out of high school at the age of 15. He joined the U.S. Marines when he was 17. 19, he returned from the Marines. Looking to start in show business, he went door-to-door and applied to every talent agency in the phone book. Ron finally landed an entry-level job as a messenger at the Paul Koner Agency. This marked Ron's entry into show business. After six years at the Paul Koner Agency, Ron left to become a junior agent at the William Morris Agency. At William Morris, Ron toiled alongside a fellow hustler and grunt, Michael Ovitz. Both were hungry, smart, and ready to strike out on their own. 1975, Meyer and Ovitz, along with Bill Haber, Roland Perkins, and Michael Rosenfeld, founded CAA, the Creative Artists Agency. At CAA, Ron's way with people, coupled with Ovitz's tactical jujitsu, gradually enticed clients tired of William Morris's reign on the top. By 1985, CAA represented Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Bob De Niro, and the lion's share of Hollywood's top-notch talent. In the 1990s, CAA would launch several megastars, Will Smith, Sandra Bullock, and represent powerhouses, including Tom Hanks and Bill Murray. Richard Lovett, who's the president of CAA today, recalls that Ron, quote, taught us a great deal about the art of being an agent. 
Ron loved his clients. He really cared. So when the leader walks his talk, the rest of the agency finds it very easy to accept that this is how we work. If an agent didn't return a client's call, Ron would be deeply and truly angry. He would find that kind of disregard for another human being and their feelings beyond unacceptable. End quote. By the mid-1990s, Ron planned to leave CAA and set up a shop as an independent producer. But Mike Lovitz had another deal in mind. The new owner of Universal Pictures, Seagram's CEO, Edgar Bronfman Jr., wanted Ovitz to run Universal. Ovitz wanted Meyer to come with him and run the movie studio. Shortly after the principals reached a handshake agreement, the deal derailed. Then entered David Geffen, co-founder of DreamWorks, who urged Bronfman to hire someone else, and that was Ron Meyer. When Ron became president of Universal Studios in 1995, he faced a mountain of skepticism. He'd excelled at managing actors, but that in no way meant that Ron, who had no formal business training, could run a publicly traded billion-dollar movie studio. Over the next few years, Ron oversaw enough big-ticket duds, such as Waterworld, McHale's Navy, Blues Brothers, that he feared the next one would be the end of him. Meyer's apprehension led him to back out of a commitment to make Titanic, a project that Paramount and Fox later parlayed into what was then the highest-grossing film in history. Even after the studio began producing hits like Aaron Brockovich, Gladiator, Meet the Parents, Ron still felt vulnerable because the company changed owners frequently. His corporate overlords would include Seagram, Vivendi, Barry Diller, General Electric, and Comcast, each of which required him to prove himself anew. A few years ago, when Universal hit another low period with movies like Cowboys and Aliens or Battleship, Ron took responsibility. He said, if you're going to take credit for your hits, you better take a lot of blame for your flops. Then Universal hit a hot streak that included Ted, Despicable Me 2, and six other films that opened at number one. The human touch that made Ron a great talent agent gave him an edge as an executive. Some notable accomplishments I just want to highlight from Ron's career. He played a key role, along with Jeff Schell and others, and of course Steve Burke and Brian Roberts, in the company's $3.8 billion acquisition of DreamWorks Animation, whose hits include Shrek and Madagascar, among many others. He led the revival of the company's theme parks. The clincher came when Ron turned to his old friend Barry Meyer, chairman of Warner Brothers, and persuade him to share a portion of Warner Brothers' lucrative Harry Potter franchise. That was key for the theme parks. The wizarding world of Harry Potter has since become a blockbuster attraction at three universal parks. Collectively, the theme parks in Hollywood, Orlando, Japan, and Singapore now earn more than $3 billion a year. In 2016, Ron signed a contract to remain vice chairman of NBC Universal for an additional five years. His contract was set to expire a year later in 2017. This was all thanks to the collective success of Jurassic World, Furious 7, Pitch Perfect 2, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Minions. In 2015, Universal Pictures earned $6.9 billion in worldwide box office, the highest grossing year ever for a studio. Thank you very much for being here, Ron. I've known you for a long time. We've been through a lot together. I'm fascinated by your career, the arc of your life so far, and the entrepreneurial nature that exists within you in many different facets of your life. So I really appreciate your sitting down with us. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. I want to start with personal beginnings, because I think it's a great time to think about the industry. I think it's a great time to kind of put down what the narratives are for the media business because I think things are changing so quickly that things may not be as readily interesting to talk about in the future as they become part of AT&T and telephone companies, etc. Your personal beginnings, you have obviously uh, had a decorated career running the uh, Universal Studio business for 23 years. You've overseen such great movies like Gladiator, Meet the Parents, Fast and Furious franchises, Despicable Me, many, many more than I could even name. The Universal Studios business, I think, now generates almost $7 billion in worldwide box office and has had a huge rebound and resurgence over the last few years. It's a really great story. But you started as just a scrappy kid that dropped out of school and went to the Marines. And people that know you today 
I think, think of you as uh, congenial and easygoing and easy to get along with, a consummate friend to everyone in the industry. But it sounds like you had some rebelliousness in you back then. Well, I was a kid. I mean, I left school at 15. My mother and father escaped Nazi Germany in 1939, and they immigrated to Los Angeles. They met actually here, but they both had similar backgrounds. Both escaped at the same time. So I was born here. My parents barely spoke English at the time, and I was in school, not liking school. I was boxing and shooting pool every day. And I preferred that to going to school. So I would cut school literally every single day. And when I was 15, I never set foot in school again, except to go to what they call continuation school. So I could get a work permit. I went to school for like one day a week for three hours and I got a work permit so I could get a job. And when I was 17, I went in the Marine Corps. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I had a lot of jobs, but I got a miracle job working for a man named Paul Conner, a great old time theatrical agent. He represented William Wyler and John Huston and Ingemar Bergman and Lana Turner and Charles Bronson and people like that. And I was his driver and all of their driver whenever they would be in town or they needed something delivered or picked up. And I was a seven-day-a-week driver for them. And How did you find your way from the Marines to the talent agency? Did you know that you wanted to do that? When I was in the Marine Corps, I got the measles and I was quarantined and embarrassed to admit that I had never read a book up to that point in my life. And while I was quarantined in those days, there was no internet. There was no, they wouldn't have TV in those rooms. And my mother sent me two books. She sent me a book called The Amboy Dukes, which was about kids in trouble, which I always been. And another one called The Flesh Peddlers by a man named Stephen Longstreet. And it was about a guy who worked at an agency and he went out with beautiful for women and drove fast cars. And I thought, wow, what a great way to make a living. And I didn't know there was such a thing. I was one of those people, even though I grew up in Hollywood, Los Angeles, you know, I thought when you went to a movie, it would just finish shooting the night before. You know, I had no concept of what it took to make a movie or anything about the movie business. My father was a ladies dress salesman, a traveling salesman. So I didn't have any understanding of what the film business was. I read this book and I thought, wow, when I get out of the Marine Corps, this is what I'm going to want to do. I, what, I, what about it really appealed to you? What sparked you? The fast cars and beautiful women. Uh, <laughs> And it seemed like, well, there's a job. There was actually a job as being an agent. The book is a fictitious book, uh, but a fictitious character. But it was a ride. And I thought, wow, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I thought, as good as any. So I was working. I got a lot of jobs. I got a job at a, a men's clothing store, Zeidler and Zeidler. And I'd been on interviews. I went to every agency around. Anybody I would meet, I'd ask, do you know anybody in the theatrical agency business? Kind of surprising, you know, if you're in a company town like Hollywood, again, Los Angeles, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And that's what happened to me. I met someone who knew somebody that knew somebody and their messenger quit and they remembered a guy named Ron who worked at Zeidler and Zeidler and they called up those days I was making about $35, $40 a week at Zeidler and Zeidler hard to believe that but you could actually live on that money those days they called and said we, I still picture myself where I answered that phone and where I was when that happened and they said there's a call for you Ron and they said is this the Ron that came in the interview and I said yeah there wasn't really an interview for job it was just the, they said come in the interview, like most of those things, they, no one ever contacted me again. And if they tried to contact me, I wouldn't have known because I had no answering machine or no one to answer my phones. It was a phone rang and rang and rang or someone picked it up. And so they said, you still want the job. It was on a Friday. So we pay $75 a week. We give you a gas credit card and we pay for your lunches. I was rich overnight. You loved it. And I quit my job that moment at the clothing store and I started it. Paul Conner on Monday morning. How badly did you want the job? Did you want to break into Hollywood? Oh, I was desperate, but I had sort of given up at that point. By the time they called me, I'd been on beating every door down that I possibly could, and nobody was interested in me. I thought being a veteran would have somebody caring about me, but frankly, my lack of education is really what held me back. And had yeah. you had no training. But no one had any training. Whatever applications I could ever fill out, they said, what job are you applying for? I said, anything available. <laughs> you know, I was not very sophisticated. And of course, nobody hires anybody that says anything available. <laughs> 
I worked as his driver and his messenger for five years. Then I understood a little more about the business and I was ambitious, mid-20s at that point. I asked everybody around, do you know anybody who I could meet? I actually wanted to go to William Morris. I had targeted William Morris as the place that would be the right place for me. Anybody I would meet, I would say, do you know anybody at William Morris that you could introduce me to? And again, through that, I got an introduction to a man named Phil Weltman at William Morris, a, a man named Paul Flaherty, actually, who's very responsible for my career as far as I'm concerned. He was an agent at William Morris, and I used to bump into him at, at the studios when I would go deliver things. And he got me in the interview with Phil Weltman. And Phil Weltman, after a number of months and a lot of interviews, hired me in the TV talent department. What do you think Paul saw in you that made him want to go out on a limb and get you the interview? You know, it's a good question. I don't know. He's a good guy. I bump into him in town every once in a while. I feel completely indebted to him. Anytime anybody ask, how did you get to where you are? Paul Flaherty really was the, as far as I'm concerned, is the person who made the introduction that changed my life. Conor made the difference, but I would have been stuck at Conor. I could have been a messenger still today there if uh, Paul Flaherty hadn't come along. He did what he said he would do. He got me an interview at William Morris. And you never forgot it. Oh, I would never forget it. That is who you are, from my experience, and obviously not just mine, but I think everyone that knows you. You don't forget about people. In fact, the, just the opposite, you prioritize them. You're referred to actually as uh, Hollywood's Mr. Nice Guy. You obviously were a super agent. You founded CAA with your partners. But you've guided the careers of stars like Michael Douglas, Barbara Streisand, Sylvester Stallone, Meryl Streep, even The Rock has called you a second father to him. What is it about how you treat people that is so special and became such an important thing in your life? I always believed in the basics. I think you treat people the way you want to be treated. You do the things you say you're going to do. You tell the best truth that you possibly can. If it made a difference in my life, then I'm fortunate because it's what I knew how to do and what was comfortable for me. I, you know, I always would say, don't mistake niceness for weakness. The world's a tough enough place as it is. I think you got to kind of do the things you say you're going to do and treat people right. And bring joy. Well, if you can. Yeah. But I know I bring joy, but I do the best I can. And I think if you treat people right, it comes back to you in some form. It can't be perfect, and none of us are perfect. I was never the smartest. I was never probably the best at what I did, but I knew how to do those basics. Lorne Michaels, who's a friend of yours and obviously is of Saturday Night Live fame, said that you know it's always about the talent and that we all serve. If you ever forget that, you tend to be gone. It's never about you. Certainly, that's true. I mean, when you're on the side of the business that I've been on, we're dependent on talent in every area to do the job that we need to be responsible for. So whether it's an agent, it's certainly about the talent, whatever it might be, whether it's actors, directors, writers, producers, or on this side of the business as a buyer, we need the right people to come to work with you've, and for us. You've also said it's also about follow through. So I think part of treating people well is also making sure you deliver what you say. Well, yeah, I'd go back to what I said before. You have to do the things you say you're going to do. I think in the short run, it's never appreciated. But if you're going to stick around a long time, it means everything. I mean, when someone says to me, I'll call you back in five minutes, and they don't call me back for two days, I remember that. I expect, actually, they'll call me back in five minutes. If I say to someone, I'll call you back in five minutes, even if I don't have the answer, I'll call them back in five minutes and say, I won't have the answer for you, and I'll let you know when I do. But I think that's a part of living in the planet. I but think you do it's, recognize it's a rare quality in life and certainly maybe in Hollywood. Not to flatter myself, I think it's a rare quality in every business, but it's the thing that I teach my children. And none of us are going to be the best at anything, probably not, or the smartest. But you can do those things, and that makes a difference. That's what really working together and people knowing they can depend on you, even if you can't deliver the results, as long as you do what you say you're going to do, I think is essential. I believe in returning every email, every phone call. If someone abuses that, I'll call them or email them and say, don't email me again or don't call me again. But I will give them the courtesy of that. I won't just ignore it. I believe that that everybody deserves that courtesy. Do you feel like as being a, a nice guy and having those kinds of standards, you ever feel taken advantage of or people 
abuse that privilege? Yeah, I think people abuse that communication part of it. When I'm accessible, you know, I have the good habit or bad habit of picking up every call I can quickly. I like calls better than I do emails or responding to emails immediately. There's some people who will waste your time and continue to waste it until you tell them, don't call me anymore. You can't waste it. So yeah, you would take advantage of a little. I think it's probably a sucker's play. A lot of people won't return phone calls and don't do But I remember the days when people didn't return my call. It's painful sitting around waiting and hoping they'll get back to you. I'm a believer that those are kind of simple things to do no matter how busy you are or where you are on the planet. If you're too busy to do it, then those of us that are in that busy world, we have assistance. People that work with us who can make that call and say, Mr. or Miss X is out today in a diving bell and they can't return your call and they'll get back to you tomorrow or day after tomorrow. But at least the person who's waiting for that call knows something. So yeah, it's probably a corny and a square head answer, but I do believe in it. No, it's so logical and of course suitable and the right way to do things, but it's often overlooked. Let's talk about the movie business. You've been running Universal Pictures for 23 years. And what's- Well, I'm going to only correct you for a second. I never really just ran Universal Pictures. I really, my duties- were, although it changed over the years, but were really primarily the theme parks, the physical studio, and the motion picture group. You mentioned all those pictures. Really, other people are responsible for making those films. I mean, I'm there and I'm part of those decisions, but they really are people in this company that run the motion picture group on a daily basis that really are responsible for the films that we make and don't. And I, even when the times I could have or might have vetoed something, they know more or as much as I do. The movie business is a crapshoot, no matter how smart you are. No one ever set out to make a failing movie. If you're going to have people do that job, you got to trust them to do it. So what are your areas of responsibility that today... Well, today I'm a little more at large. I'm obviously involved with the motion picture group on a regular basis. The theme parks report to me, although frankly, the people that run it do such a superb job that they don't need too much for me. And the physical studios has been set up perfectly. There's people who run each of these divisions that do a great job. So I'm the mayor of a small town. You're the mayor of a uh, volatile town, not for Universal necessarily. Well, but Universal is a small town that I'm the mayor of. Universal is a small town. So when you look back and you think about your tenure or you're looking over the motion picture business, what is the secret sauce if there, if there is one? Or how do you overcome the volatility? All these businesses are really about people. And if you put the right people in place and give them the right culture and environment to work in, I think you get very productive. And it worked for us. People are everything. And you have to not only have people that are great at their job, but that know how to work with other people. If you don't have teamwork and a cooperative environment, I think you cannot succeed consistently. And do you think that you can pinpoint what happened from the rebound over the last few years for the Universal Studios business in terms of having this resurgence of quality and hits and obviously financial success as well? Or do you feel like it's a bit of a zero-sum game and there's a cycle to it? It doesn't mean we'll be perfect all the time. But I think the Jeff Shell and Donna Langley, who run the day-to-day motion picture group, are as good and as smart as anybody I've ever known doing it. They're a great team. It isn't an accident. I think it's more an accident when we have a flop than it is when we have a hit. I used to think it was an accident when you had a hit. They know their business. They do it as well as I've ever watched anybody do it. And I'm proud to be here with them. They do a great job. Of course, you have to have some luck and timing and a lot of different things falling into place, but you have to have the right people doing the right job. And you have to know that you can maximize the upside and minimize the downside. Probably very much like your business. Of course. We're sitting here in November and we're looking out to the holiday season for our audience, for our families. What should we be looking forward to from Universal for the hit season? Well, holiday season. Our, our holiday film is Pitch Perfect 3. It's obviously the third in a series of films that have been very successful for us. So that's our Christmas. We had a very successful year and that really will top off the year. Great. So I want to talk about something that is near and dear to our relationship, which is corporate ownership, which sounds a little bit funny about 
our relationship being tied to that. But we met during the merger or the acquisition of NBC from Comcast right. uh, that we were advising on. And at the time, you had told me that it was, I don't know, the fourth or fifth corporate parent that you've had. And you've worked for Seagram with Edgar Bronfman. You worked for Barry Diller. You've worked for General Electric. And obviously with Comcast now. So you're a survivor. I, I also had two Vivendi's. Two Vivendi. Yeah, so this is our sixth owner. We had Vivendi one, and when everybody at Vivendi one was let go, literally they shut the doors for a moment, and then they rehired an entire. They hired an entire new management team, and they became our owners again. So we had to re-educate who we were twice to Vivendi. We've had six owners in my twenty-three years. You oversee a volatile business, obviously a successful one. You're a people person, yet you've had to survive and thrive under six different corporate owners. What's the secret? How does that happen? <laughs> For sure, luck and timing play a big part in it. You'll have to ask those owners. You know, I was hired by Edgar Bronfman in the Seagram Company. You know, we were on the market. We were sold a lot. And I think each one, with the exception of Barry Diller, who had real understanding of the entertainment business, the movie business, the others didn't. I probably became, at least the beginning, someone who knew how to kind of navigate their way around this industry. After they kept me for that time, they realized that myself and the team of people that I was with were able to do the job. You know, I don't know what would have happened had I had one owner for the past 23 years. I'd probably be long gone. But we've been in transition. I have an amazing group of people that are part of this company here, that work here. Even though we've had some transition, it pretty much stayed very stable. And I was able to show each owner, don't fix what isn't broken. In most cases, they listened. They didn't come in and do any wholesale firing or merging. They let us run the business. And we had good years and bad years, never really catastrophic years, but disappointing years. The difference was that each owner, somewhere knew they were going to unload us. And so getting the complete support that we needed to build these companies, not just run them, but to actually grow them, was probably not in their best interest. Comcast has been just the opposite. They've just been extraordinary. They've been supportive. They're tough. They're smart. They've backed us to grow this company, and we've had together the most extraordinary success ever. I have to believe that a lot of your security and a lot of your success and your durability has to do with your relationships and the way you've been treating people and that you continue to treat people and that is really your asset mix here in town, right? That you uh, are so well regarded and that people want to work with you. No matter what your owner looks like or what their strategy is, that is a discernible asset that can't be replicated. Well, it's nice to hear that. Yes and no. I think when the community feels that the people that own this company, own any company, are not supportive of it, they're hesitant to bring their projects here and to do them because they're concerned that the project won't get the full benefit that they might have gotten somewhere else. Steve Burke is my boss. He's been visible, so people know that he cares. They know that he's there for real, as is Brian Roberts, who runs the overall company, runs Comcast and all of it. They're visible. They show up. They're willing to talk to anybody. They're willing to reassure people, if we need it, that they're here to stay, that they're not selling this company, which they're not. They've been extraordinary bosses and owners. I've been here too long to have to just kiss their ass. I actually admire them, and I'm glad they're the owners because they've made all the difference in the world. And I think a lot has to do with the fact that they will invest in the business. Right? They are, they're not afraid. They're, they're not afraid. They're tough, they're smart, and they don't make foolish bets, but they're willing to make the big bet if they think it has value. Yeah, I think that's a trend line we're seeing across the industry, particularly in the media business where it's in transition, business models are changing, the studio business can be changing all the time, as you said, and can be volatile potentially. You need a parent company in some cases that's willing to invest behind it and show support and show strength, right? No, in some cases you need it completely. These businesses are way too volatile and the bet is too big. And so if you don't have the backing of a strong parent company, one that believes in what you're doing and how it's being done, you can't succeed. 
not today's market. Yeah, and it's not just being done organically here, right? There are some acquisitions that the company has been making, like the DreamWorks deal, to really make some bets behind the core business. Yeah, but it will take a while for the DreamWorks deal to really be profitable for us. So you need a company that an ownership that doesn't say to you, you know, six months later, well, where's the profits coming from DreamWorks? It's going to take a while. It have proven to be a great investment, but it will take a, a couple years for that really to prove. And what do you think now that we're in such a transition period overall in the industry where everything is going direct to consumer, technology has a big role to play here. I know that the company's close to Snap and different deals that NBC's been doing with Snap and now with Apple and the Spielberg assets with Amblin. I mean, how do you think from your perspective of where the industry is going from technology and consumer orientation? Well, look, I'm still an old-fashioned content provider. I believe in the movie-going experience. I think it's great that there's all these other avenues for content to, to be seen and for people to be entertained. But I'm a real believer still in the movie-going experience. And I think we all have to be a little better at it. Can't get away with some of the crap that we've gotten away with. But in general, people go to the movies, give them the right product. There's no greater communal experience than going to the movies. It's cheaper than a sporting event, than a concert, than a book, than a play. Nothing better than going and feeling an audience reaction to a movie that you're loving or that makes you happy or makes you sad or, or it's controversial or even makes you angry, you know, whatever it might be, you know, or you don't like it. It's still an experience. It's a great experience. True. But your kids, your employees, the talent, they must be saying, Ron, have you seen this new device I'm using? Have you seen this new technology I'm using? Always. This is amazing. Always. Well, how do you react to it saying it's going to go away or no, do I have to adopt it, or it what? It depends what it is. Well, certainly not, they're not going away. Some are going away. It's not just the future. It's the present. Yeah. But my kids still go into the movies. Give them the right movie to go see. They'll go. Include it if they could watch it on one of their devices or watch it at home. You have to give them a reason to go. As again, as a content provider, everyone that licenses or rents or buys our content is a friend of mine. So a couple of fun questions. What's your favorite movie of all time? There's so many movies that I really love. I mean, I love movies. Probably, arguably, Godfather 1 and 2 in any version is one of the great movies of all time. There are a lot of movies that have favorites, but Godfather 1 and 2, those two are together. They had two versions. They showed 1 and 2 in a linear form, and one, they co-mingled them, and both were just amazing. Both I, I agree with you on that one. Which movies are you most proud of? I'm proud of a lot of our movies, but the two films that, for me, that I feel proud that it was on my watch as Brokeback Mountain and United 93. I think they both were movies that studios normally wouldn't make and they were about two really very important subjects. One about men in love, which no one really had portrayed properly. You cared about these two men, and you cared about their plight, you cared about their life. It was nothing salacious about it. It was just a great love story. United 93 showed what people can do in the very worst of circumstances. They turned out to both be hits for us, but unlikely hits. So they're the two films I'm probably the most proud of. You're known for having a dinner parties with your intimate friends and family at your house and then showing a movie night in your home afterwards. So if there's a dinner this weekend, what movie are you showing? Oh God, I have like four movies. I'm going to see a film with Brian Cranston that looks pretty good to me, actually. I'm going to see that. I'm going to see Thor and I'm going to see Bad Moms. And I think I have one or two other movies lined up. If I can, I try to stay home on the weekend so I can watch, you know, it's like six films so I can at least stay current with what's going on. I won't ask you who the dinner guests are going to be. Good. <laughs> so you talked about the first book you ever read. What book are you reading now, if any? I probably should admit it because he's a friend of mine. I am reading the Jan Winter book. I love Jan. I hope it portrays him properly because he deserves to be. He's a good guy and a good friend. But I will read it, and he hasn't asked me not to. So You have surrounded yourself in your career and your life with interesting people left, right, and center. Is there anyone that stands out as being probably the most interesting person that you've met in your life? doesn't have Boy. to be necessarily a friend. <laughs> God. 
No, I haven't met the Pope or Mother Teresa, so I met many presidents or a number of presidents. I'm flattered they pretend to remember me. I probably wouldn't venture to say it because I'll get in trouble. <laughs> okay. And anything that keeps you up at night today, Ron? I mean, obviously, there's a new generation of executives, producers. What's your message to the next generation to come? I'll answer the last one first. I say to everybody, you know, and it carried me a long distance. I went to write a sign when I was very young. It said, Assumption's the mother of all fuck-ups. I believe there's no truer words ever written or spoken. If people think about what that means, it tells you a lot because we all assume, oh yeah, don't worry, this will get taken care of or don't worry about it, I'll be on time or whatever it is. Assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. I tell it to my children, I tell it to anyone who will listen, I hope my epitaph that's will be there somewhere, even though I didn't invent it, I've carried it a long distance well, it keeps me up at night. First, once your family's okay, I know I'm okay. When you run these companies, you're playing with other people's money and you want to be as smart about it and as thoughtful as you possibly can. When you have a hit, you're a genius. And when you have a flop, you're a bum. And you better have more hits than flops or you've let these people down who've trusted you to do a job for them. It keeps me up at night. It's always hard for you to get past. There's nothing worse than having a, especially in the movie business, a movie that no one goes to see. No matter what anybody tells you, you lose a lot of money especially in today's world. Yeah. Any other mentors in your life that you can point to? Paul Conner was amazing. Strange enough, he had a secretary. In those days, they called him secretaries, who was a very, very tough taskmaster. And I hated working for her. I hated working for her. Later in life, I realized what a tremendous influence, positive influence she had on me. She used to scream at me and yell at me and really kind of humiliate me, but I was too afraid of losing the job. So I, I rarely fought back. Some of the fundamentals that I said to you, you know, she would give me a list of 10 things to do. I'd come back and I've got nine of them right. She'd say, yeah, she'd say, I can't believe you didn't get all 10 right. Well, of course, I didn't write them down. So how could I get all 10 right? You know, I thought nine out of 10 was pretty good. <laughs> for memory. Well, yeah, for memory. <laughs> so of course you have to get all 10 right. I know it sounds so ridiculous, but you know, you go to a restaurant now and you order a complicated order and the waiter or waitress is saying, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. Got it. Then when it comes back wrong, they look at you and say, well, what's the problem? And that was me growing up. So she really taught me that you got to get all 10 things right. The only way you're going to get them right is if you write them down. And when you've got done each one of your tasks, you cross it off. Little things like that. But she was a huge bender for me. I wish I could tell her because I don't think we liked each other in the end. But I look back and she really made a huge difference in my life. And Phil Weltman was irreplaceable. He was my boss at William Morris, but he was an extraordinary leader and you know really was a selfless leader. And it made a very tough guy, but great man and really made a difference. Do you feel like you're a mentor to many of the people that are in the business today? I don't know. Do you, do you actively question. mentor anyone? I don't, no, because I have been asked many times, probably more because of my position than my ability. But once you say yes to somebody, you have to say yes to a lot of them. I make myself available to people if they really need some advice or I can be helpful to them. But I don't think it'd be right for me to take that a single responsibility or a couple people to mentor just specifically. Well, you're certainly a strong influence on countless of people out there in the business. Ron, thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, it's a critical time to be talking to you. And I really appreciate your time and your honesty. And uh, I look forward to many more years to come of collaboration. Me too. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.